is this our first three-parter? Yes, it is. Mostly because my obsessive tendencies love a good deep dive, but even in three parts, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of the Michael Peterson case. So if you guys want to go on your own journey with this, definitely check out the Staircase docu-series directed by Jean-Xavier de Lestrade that is currently available on Netflix. It definitely leans more sympathetic towards Michael Peterson's innocence, but Caitlin and I feel like it also does a good job of giving us those little intimate moments in the Peterson family and those looks between people and sound bites where you can also be like, you know what, I don't know what camp I'm in anymore regarding his innocence. But if you're just popping into this podcast, definitely go listen to parts one and two of our coverage of the Michael Peterson case uh, so that everything we're going to talk about today will make sense. Or maybe it won't still. Once more down the staircase we go. Oh man, the mountains call my number When we last left you, Michael Peterson was on year eight of a life sentence after he was convicted of first-degree murder in the 2001 death of his wife, Kathleen Peterson. And my God, he was not looking well. No. (laughs) Prison life seemed to have aged the 68-year-old drastically, and the once energetic and charismatic novelist struggled to get up and down from the stool, sat behind the glass divider, in the visiting area of the Nash Correctional Institute. That's being nice. He looks like the freaking crypt keeper. I mean... <laughs> Bitch, he looks like us after we've sat on the floor for a little too long. I can only imagine what a 70-year-old back must be like sleeping in a prison. Oh, well. Pot. I mean, and if he was guilty, who cares? But if he yep. wasn't, that is really, really horrible. Oh, And like you just said, if he was guilty, who cares? Prison's not supposed to be a resort. But if he didn't do it, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. He's having to meet his grandson for the first time through that class. He's missed everyone's graduations and birthdays. And there's really no way to get around it. He's an old man. Yep. After both his appeals were rejected, the Peterson kids had pretty much lost hope that their father would spend the rest of his life anywhere but behind bars. But miraculously, suddenly, Michael Peterson was granted a retrial. Without getting into all the details again that we covered in the last episode, the retrial came about because the jury's decision to convict Michael was drastically influenced by the expert testimony of Dwayne Deaver, the blood splatter analysis massive air quotes blood splatter analyst who turned out to not be anything but a fraudster with a degree in zoology of all things what can you even do with a degree in zoology work at the zoo i guess animals work with animals anything but stand in front of a courtroom with a a fake head and hit it repeatedly with a blow poke even then i feel like Getting a degree in zoology is like getting any other general bachelor's degree. You then have to get an additional advanced degree before they'll actually let you 
handle anything significant. So a bachelor's in zoology would mean like you could shovel shit in the llama exhibit Hmm. and feed them their bananas, but not actually. (laughs) But it's really not any sort of advanced level of education at all. No, not in this term. And if you happen to remember, he gave an incredibly damning testimony about the blood spatter patterns at the crime scene and said there was no way they could have occurred aside from a violent beating. He was found to have misled both the judge and the jury in the Peterson's case and was released from prison on December 16, 2011, after serving almost a decade behind bars. His bail was set at $300,000 and he was placed under house arrest with an anchor. <laughs> with an with anchor. An anchor. <laughs> Man. Oh, with an Durham justice. <laughs> with an ankle monitor. At this point, Michael was completely financially destitute, and after almost three years of absolutely nothing moving in the court system, his former lead defense attorney, David Rudolph, agreed to take on Michael's case again pro bono. Rudolph presented Michael with three possible options, a no-contest plea, moving forward with an entirely new trial, or an Alford plea. A no-contest plea would basically be Michael admitting guilt and continuing to serve his life sentence, which he definitely was not going to do since he had always maintained his total innocence from day one. A new trial could potentially go better for Michael due to Deaver's testimony being thrown out and a ruling that everything to do with Elizabeth Ratliff's death would no longer be allowed. But Michael was incredibly skeptical due to how his previous trial went and the blatant corruption of evidence and false expert testimony. So, his only option left was an Alford plea. And prior to this case, we have never even heard of the Alford plea. So here's a quick breakdown. In the American justice system, an Alford plea means that the defendant can plead guilty yet still maintain their innocence and not admit to the crime they are accused of committing. While the defendant is still pleading guilty with an Alford plea, this is because they are admitting that the prosecution has enough evidence to persuade a judge or jury that they committed the crime. They therefore choose under these circumstances to be treated as guilty and move forward to sentencing. The Alford plea gets its name from the 1970 case North Carolina v. Alford in which the defendant, Henry Alford, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in order to avoid the death penalty for the crime he was initially charged with, first-degree murder. When Alford later argued that his plea was, quote, involuntary because its principal motivation was fear of the death penalty, unquote, a lengthy series of proceedings resulted in the Supreme Court of the United States ruling that, quote, an individual accused of crime may voluntarily knowingly and understandingly consent to the imposition of a prison sentence even if he is unwilling or unable to admit his participation in the acts constituting the crime, unquote. At first, Michael vehemently shot down the option of an Alford plea because it would mean that on the record he'd be guilty of killing Kathleen and he wanted to stand firmly by his innocence. But by February 2017, while awaiting his new trial and becoming increasingly afraid of how unpredictable juries can be, Michael decided to enter an Alford plea and accepted a charge of voluntary manslaughter in the death of Kathleen. He was sentenced to time already served and finally, after over a decade, walked away a free man. 
in all of this process, I think it's not actually when the Alfred plea happens, but it's following one of Michael's appeals, I believe, that when he is on house arrest, you know, he has that ankle Mm -hmm. monitor. And apparently he had that ankle monitor for almost three years while he was under house arrest. And that is very unusual. People usually don't A, are not under house arrest for that long, Mm -hmm. and B, don't have ankle monitors on for that long. And he's also an elderly man. So David Rudolph requested in a hearing that he be able to have that ankle monitor removed. Yeah. And the stink that Kathleen's sister, both sisters, raised over that ankle monitor was really I don't want to make fun of them because I that's in really poor taste but it's very evident by how worked up they are the screaming the waving their hands that they are grieving just as hard for Kathleen Mm -hmm. a decade later as they were right when her very tragic death happened and they have chosen this is what's so difficult about being an outsider looking in with the information that we have is that whether or not Michael did it it seems like they chose to double down on his guilt right no matter what no matter what because they needed there to be a reason yeah why she died and and that totally makes sense yes and their frustration for him getting that ankle monitor off i if i were in their shoes and i did believe he did it with all my heart i'd be pissed that he was getting his freedom back when my sister had her stripped from her absolutely it's just it's this is one of the trickiest cases yeah because you there is no definitive answer yeah. Of whether he did it or not. Yeah. And so we, you have two, both sides that you're just, you're watching them fight each other. And I don't want to like downplay either side, but I don't know. Like it's hard to not root for one side more. It is. And regardless of who was right and what actually happened, the events surrounding her death, obviously not only the worst part is that Kathleen lost her life but Mm -hmm. it just completely tore that family oh gosh apart at the seams and nobody was ever the same again Mm -mm. and how could you be after something like that no and then to have it in the media too oh yeah to just not be able to get away from it and then here we have a few years later hey there's an hbo max series about it which i'm not gonna lie i (laughs) ate up every second of that even though it's a dramatization but we love that as people we like the salacious story we want to know the drama we want the speculation and we can easily remove ourselves when it's Mm -hmm. not us that what we're dealing with are real people and their real lives and it makes you feel 
shitty on one hand but then on the other you know that it's a story and Mm -hmm. we need stories and we love stories and so it's a story and yeah that's and so here we are and so here retelling the story telling the story (laughs) you're welcome not nearly as good as other people do but it is a story that is fascinating so have you heard of the theory of Occam's razor? The theory that if there's more than one possible explanation for something, the simplest one is usually the correct one. You can forget all about that, however, when it comes to Netflix's true crime documentary series that we mentioned before, The Staircase, and the new HBO series It Inspired. But what if, in this case, the correct explanation is actually the most bizarre one? What if everything we thought we knew was actually wrong? And what if Michael Peterson didn't kill his wife, nor did she accidentally fall down the stairs? What if Kathleen Peterson died because she was attacked by a massive owl. In 2008, the Peterson's neighbor and lawyer, a good old Southern boy, and I mean that in the best possible way. I know that has a really negative connotation, but he is somebody that my heart melts when I look at him. Larry Pollard. Larry motherfucking Pollard. (laughs) Larry! Larry, Larry. Put forth the theory via a series of YouTube videos, which I would highly recommend watching because they are fascinating, that Kathleen Peterson had been the victim of a vicious attack by a barred owl. These large birds of prey are very common around Durham, North Carolina, where the Petersons live. And there's actually many well-documented examples of barred owls attacking people with no warning outside by dive-bombing their heads. And in December, when Kathleen Peterson died, was the mating season of the barred owl, which had them extremely territorial and unpredictable. Larry Pollard's belief was that Kathleen had left the pool where she was sitting by Michael, started to go inside, then decided spur of the moment to put out a couple of reindeer Christmas decorations on the front lawn. When an owl swooped down and struck the back of her head viciously with its talons, disoriented and bleeding profusely from her head, Kathleen would have stumbled into the house, which is where she would have left those two drops of blood that were found on the cement entryway to the home and the bloody handprint that was found on the doorframe of the home, and headed for the stairs to the linen closet on the second floor to retrieve a towel, when she would likely have become woozy somewhere around the third or fourth stair fainted and fell cracking her head. She probably would have regained consciousness briefly and tried to get up again and would have fell again and 
bled to death. And then, as we know, well, I say blood to death. Michael Peterson, actually, the way that he tells it, he came in, she was still breathing. Mm-hmm. He calls 911. A few minutes passes, about 15 minutes he calls later, and at that point she was deceased. So, I mean... And then um, the episode, episode 7 mm-hmm. of the HBO um, docu-series mm-hmm. they do a really good job of oh, walking dra- us through the uh not the docu-series the uh the drama series yes the drama yeah. series yes sorry yeah. oh, um right. they do a really good job of walking this this instance oh yes like how she fantastic. like falls they explain like they don't explain it just visually shows you how the blood like coughs like you said mm-hmm. and it sprays yes. how she you get like the handprint all it mm-hmm. it just really maps it out yes very well and what i also appreciate about that theory being dramatized is we get to see the speed with which it happened oh gosh it yeah. happens incredibly quickly so it's not like she's having some sort of violent prolonged struggle mm-hmm. the bird swoops down claws at her kind of frantically is beating its wings and then it's like it goes oh whoops i you're not a rabbit right sorry and it flies off (laughs) sorry (laughs) sorry not sorry but and she was not super intoxicated but Mm -mm. she had a couple glasses of wine and a valium so maybe she's a little bit like to begin with and then all of a sudden you're in searing pain and you have all of this blood she had like if this were the case shock would have to set in yeah that would be shocking and it's super late at night it's pitch black dark you put your hand to your hair and you pull it away and suddenly it's covered in blood Mm -hmm. so doing that when she's walking in the house and up the stairs no wonder she would have possibly passed out and collapsed. I think I was telling you before we started recording, Caitlin, about when I was a kid and just messing around in my uh, bedroom and a book fell off of my bookcase and the corner of it nicked my scalp. And it wasn't deep at all, Mm -hmm. but it bled a ton. And I actually threw up because I put my hand to my head and pulled it away and my palm was just covered Ugh. in blood so i immediately was like oh my god my brain is exposed but really like how <laughs> like your head is it's if i had blood coming from my head like holy shit would i freak out yeah so if that is what caused those wounds to the back of her head those were vicious and she would have bled a ton and oh yeah easily could have succumbed to that traumatic level of blood loss and died so so far even though we haven't actually gotten into the forensics which oh we will (laughs) thank you larry it makes so much sense because it seems almost too good to be true like too crazy to be true and i i if y'all are like you guys are stupid as hell (laughs) thinking an owl did it just Um, wait i thought jen was too but now i'm team owl Um, Yes. So, yeah, let us explain. (laughs) A re-examination of the forensic evidence in 2009 seemed to back this owl theory up. 
On the autopsy report, Kathleen was found to have had a microscopic feather and a sliver of wood from a tree limb caught up in the clumps of hair in both of her hands that had been pulled out by the roots from her head. She also had two pine needles embedded in her hands. Remember, we mentioned that very briefly in part one when we were going over the autopsy, the weird presence of her own hairs ripped out by the root in her own hands, which makes no sense. Michael's hairs were not in her hands. Michael's DNA was not under her fingernails. It was her own hair mixed up with a dang microscopic feather and pine needles. So what the hell could that have been from? You don't just pull your hair out from the roots roots for no reason. I mean, but that is unusual. And it's something like it was like almost 10 hairs in each hand. It Mm -hmm. wasn't like, oh, she had one. Right. It was a pretty significant amount. And when you think about that in itself, her falling down the stairs, why would she pull her hair out from the roots? Mm-hmm. Her being beat, why would she pull her hair out from the yes. That's just an odd characteristic to this case. Yes. And the micro feather is especially significant because barred owls have those micro feathers and micro feathers it was a type of micro feather that is unique to an owl and those feathers extend all the way down their feet down to the talon so it's not just like oh she had a freaking i don't know a uh what am I, the word i'm looking for like a down feather from a pillow oh, or something yeah. it, it was, was a very specific yes, feather it was a very specific type of feather but people have said okay if that happened why were there not more feathers why were there not owl feathers all in the house but if it happened outside Mm -hmm. and it happened incredibly quickly and those things hunt all the time december is their mating season it's not when they're molting feathers exactly so i would not expect there to be an explosion of feathers no. all over her. And it's not like they canvassed the front yard. They're so very well what was there? Yeah. The other thing, the last thing I'll say before we continue on with what actual experts have to say, but if you've ever watched a nature documentary of an owl swooping down on something, their feet and their claws extend so far out in front of them And their wings are way, way back behind them. So again, it makes total sense to me that in that very brief swoop down, claw, and then swoop away, she never would have actually gotten entangled with its wings. And that's another part of those birds being like an apex predator of birds is Mm -hmm. that they purposely keep all of their body except for their claws away from whatever it is they're swooping down on so it's easy for me to talk my way out of people being like well there weren't feathers in the house so that debunk that bunk debunks the owl theory i 
think it makes perfect sense why there weren't feathers in the I house. mean, it does make sense. You're yeah. talking me more and more into it. <laughs> but, I mean, you're right. You're, I mean, you're right. Your sister's going to be eye-rolling oh my herself gosh. into now the just, next like, dimension. Oh, my gosh. Now just, like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so, Larry Pollard told Raleigh, North Carolina's newspaper in 2010 that it was this presence of the tiny owl microfeather that really gave them renewed hope of getting Michael's conviction overturned. Quote, We know that we got the feather, he said. We know that it happened late at night. We know that there was a small wooden slither recovered that was determined to be from a tree limb. The SBI crime lab did not examine the feathers. They assumed that these feathers didn't actually have anything to do with the crime. Quote, In three new affidavits submitted to the court, three expert witnesses backed up the owl theory. Dr. Patrick T. Reddig, professor of veterinary medicine at the University of Minnesota, said the proposed owl attack was, quote, entirely within the behavioral repertoire of large owls, quote. And another, the neurosurgeon, owl expert, and former U.S. Navy surgeon, Dr. Alan Van Norman, endorsed the theory on the basis that the wounds on Kathleen's scalp looked like they came from a pair of three-taloned feet rather than a blunt instrument, quote. The multiple wounds present suggest to me that an owl and Mrs. Peterson somehow became entangled. Perhaps the owl got tangled in her hair, or perhaps she even grabbed the owl's foot. Quote, Caitlin, did we not say in the very beginning, well, we didn't even say it. It was somebody on the defense team before this theory was even presented she makes a comment when they're looking at the autopsy photos mm -hmm. and goes wow that really looks like a raptor talon <laughs> i'm just i'm sorry no you no. <laughs> you said wow in your john voice our father-in-law <laughs> wow but that is exactly what those lacerations to the back of Kathleen's head look like. They are horrific, but it makes so much sense. And lastly, the director of Raptors of the Rockies, Kate <laughs> P. Davis. This is getting really conspiracy theory. I love conspiracy the Raptors theories. Raptors of so the Rockies. Go, Kate. Kate wrote that the lacerations, quote, looked very much like those made by a raptor's talons, especially if she had forcibly torn the bird from the back of her head. This theory, she said, would explain the feather in her hair and the clumps of her own hair torn from her head. Oh my god. Okay, well that that's like, that's it for me. The people of the raptors have spoken and they are in favor of mm -hmm. the owl theory. Yep. And before we get too carried away, there are some holes in this theory, obviously, such as why didn't Michael Peterson hear or see a massive owl, which I'll again throw my two cents in there and say that you can 
look at pictures and video of this property. Yeah. It is massive. It is surrounded by dense trees and foliage. If Michael and Kathleen were sitting out by the pool, like he said, it is impossible to really hear anything because of the sound of there's like a fountain, fountain and yes a filter in the pool and they even test that by doing this bizarre experiment at the beginning of the staircase documentary well where they have michael's defense team out by the pool mm-hmm. and they play a tape inside the staircase of the home which is really creepy and morbid of someone yelling for help mm-hmm. and you cannot hear a thing out by the pool so if he couldn't hear his wife possibly screaming for help, right? No way would he have heard an owl, or if he did, and he might not have thought anything of right. it. Right? If it was as brief as we, uh, as they theorize it being, right? Ugh. Yeah. So. So we filled that hole. Yeah. So we answered oh. that for you. Another question is why wasn't there any other trace of the owl except a couple of tiny feathers, and we definitely talked about that already and how we feel about that if it happened outside that could explain basically all of that was the owl supposed to leave his name and address his number (laughs) follow up card like (laughs) xoxo gossip girl thanks kathleen are we just endorsing a patently absurd theory to absolve a man of the violent death of a woman I really, really hope not, and I am more than willing to, I am happy to be wrong if it means oh, that absolutely. it gets solved, like, but this is pure speculation and us getting excited about theories because we like those. <laughs> and nevertheless, despite its sensationalism and the questions surrounding it, the owl theory is clearly important. And even though we don't hear about it on the actual Staircase documentary, that was not intentional or they were purposely trying to leave it out. It's really just because Michael Peterson's defense attorney, David Rudolph, only became aware of the theory just before the summing up of evidence. So he didn't actually have time to present it in court. I remember him saying in an interview that Larry Pollard actually came to him something like hours before he had to present in court. So it just wasn't going to be possible for him to sift through all of that information and present it to a judge. But what happened happened. And the documentary chooses to stick only to what was said in court. Hey, campers. Just taking a break for a moment to say that if, like us, you can't ever quite get enough of deep diving into macabre topics with fellow sickos, you should pop over and check out a podcast that was recently plugged on an episode of the wildly popular podcast Morbid called Say Psycho Right Now. You'll journey with two best friends, LJ and Toe, as they explore true crime, conspiracy, and all manner of spooky lore. We were especially intrigued and disturbed by their coverage of Nanny Doss, the giggling granny of Alabama, and their merch is pretty fantastic too. You can listen to new episodes of Say Psycho right now, every week, wherever you get your podcasts.
Since so much obsession and discussion has come about the wake of the owl theory, Michael's attorney, David Rudolph, had to weigh in. He said, quote, First, I do not know whether the owl theory is true. No one will ever know that. The best any of us can do is to weigh the evidence and consider how it stacks up against the other theories advanced to explain Kathleen's scalp injuries. And that, at the end of the day, is the key question in this case. What caused the injuries to Kathleen Peterson's scalp? That's not part of the quote. (laughs) Those were the injuries that actually caused her death. Exsanguination was the cause of death. Not blunt force trauma to her brain, not a fractured skull, not strangulation. Loss of blood. So what caused those wounds? We thought in 2003 they were due to the scalp splitting when her head hit a flat surface, such as a wall or a floor, as explained by Werner Spitz in episode 1. Our experts did not believe there were seven separate impacts to her head as the prosecution argued, but rather only three impacts, which caused splits on her scalp, as shown in the autopsy photos. But in 2003, none of us considered whether any of those scalp wounds might have been inflicted by a bird of prey. It just never crossed my mind. I wish it had. Here is the circumstantial evidence that supports the theory that Kathleen went to the front yard, perhaps to place the small reindeers in the photos, of the scene taken by the police, and that a barred owl inflicted those injuries. Barred owls were living in the woods by the Petersons' house. Barred owls are aggressive and can be dangerous. Barred owls have attacked people on numerous occasions. There were drops of blood on the outside walkway leading to the front door of the house, as shown in the police photos. There was a large smear of blood on the outside of the front door frame, as shown in the police photos. At least two of the wounds on Kathleen Peterson's scalp are in the shape of the talons of a barred owl, as shown on autopsy photos. The tiny wounds on Kathleen's face are consistent with the tip of an owl's beak. What? Isn't that crazy? Oh my god. But it explains things. It does. A feather was found on Kathleen Peterson's body. A twig was found in dried blood on Kathleen Peterson's body. There were numerous strands of Kathleen Peterson's head hair, which the roots indicated had been pulled out, not cut, found in dried blood on her hands. Kathleen's head injuries are not consistent with her having been beaten by a blunt object or on a stair, as she had no brain injury or swelling, no subdural hematoma, and no skull fracture. That's another thing that I always come back to, because... They make it a point in the trial to plop down, it's like six giant binders in front of the medical examiner, Deborah Radish, mm-hmm. who said that she believed Kathleen's death was blunt force trauma right. and a homicidal attack. And in 260 cases of homicide that were caused by blunt force trauma in the last decade in North Carolina, every single last one of them had at least one of those things that we just listed the subdural hematoma the skull fracture the significant brain swelling and Kathleen like we've said had none of that and Michael Peterson is not 
a wimpy little guy. He, if you look at him Mm -hmm. at that time, he is very muscular. Like, he has strong biceps. He has strong shoulders. He regularly went to the gym. And somebody like that, if they want to kill somebody by hitting them in the head, and Kathleen was tiny. Right. She would have had significant skull and brain trauma like you i can't believe anything different so just blunt force trauma in itself how could it be so so shallow i guess like how could it not have more of an impact yeah like not have gone deeper Mm -mm. and and especially seven lacerations if we're believing he hit her seven separate times yeah i just there mm. was not any of that and even one of those hits but yeah i do love that scene where they bring the six binders they bring the receipts and the girl's like "Mm, i mean i can't look at them now look at them all but it's the theatrics of of the weight of how many times this has happened and the consistencies Mm -hmm. are there in every single case except this one and if that right there Mm -hmm. was not that should have been the reasonable doubt moment if i was on that jury for me that would have been the reasonable doubt moment that i could not have put him away in prison for the rest of his life because that right there although we are not given definitive proof that she fell down like anything anything you know that right there is more proof than anything else that they or it's just more concrete evidence Mm -hmm. where they do not have evidence in this case right because all the defense has to do is instill that reasonable doubt and like david rudolph says if that case wasn't a classic example of reasonable doubt i don't know what was and he actually says that after that particular case when the verdict was read and you can see it on his face in the courtroom he looks like he just got hit by a truck he looks stunned like not just like well that sucks on to the next one he looks unwell and he says it was in that moment that his faith in the system that and i know this is nothing new i mean our justice system is flawed but to see it so blatantly played out in this case for him i think was very very shocking and he's been a lawyer a long time he's Mm -hmm. not like some spring chicken lawyer so that was i just yeah yeah, because you're you're following along and he's just like what do they have against you like there's no way they can win this and stuff and they just Mm -hmm. kept pulling stuff out left and right of course none of this absolutely proves it was a barred owl that inflicted the initial wounds on kathleen peterson but as the circumstantial evidence goes it seems pretty persuasive and credible so if you're not head scratching enough already over this owl theory Here are some more significant revelations to come about in Michael's case, as outlined by David Rudolph on his personal blog about the case. He writes that they learned from Frida Black's handwritten notes, and 
if you need to know who Frida Black is, make sure you are going back and listening to parts one and two. That Deborah Radish, the medical examiner, had originally not listed the cause of Kathleen's death as blunt force trauma, but rather simply as loss of blood. According to Black's notes, Radish said that her boss, the chief medical examiner of North Carolina, had insisted that she list the cause of death as blunt force trauma. This was something we could use to impeach Radish at any retrial. This is crazy. I mean, and this information is coming from David Rudolph's personal published blog. So it's not like an accredited journalistic source. I mean, Mm -hmm. the man could be blowing smoke out of his butt, but I choose to believe that he is not. And if this is true, that is staggering. It's, it Uh, sucks that it's not surprising. Yeah, it's really not. The defense also learned what they had long suspected, according to David Rudolph. Deborah Radish had convinced Candace Zamperini, Kathleen Peterson's sister, who had originally commended her sister's relationship with Michael, and said there was no way that Michael would ever hurt Kathleen, that Kathleen had been murdered. There was a fax in the file from Candace to Radish thanking her for, quote, explaining why Michael was guilty, quote, not exactly the role of an impartial expert, and again, potential impeachment of Radish would have been on the table. But according to David Rudolph, perhaps the most significant fact they learned was regarding the blow poke. Mm, screw that blow poke. The blow poke. Thomas Dew had worked for the prosecution throughout the case. He had constructed the to scale, quote unquote, staircase that the prosecution had used to illustrate Deaver's testimony. He had been present during Deaver's, quote unquote, experiments, and he had also been present when the police came back to the house in June 2002, pursuant to a search warrant to take measurements of the house. During that trip, the crime scene technicians, Eric Campen and Dan George, had again searched the house, and during this search, they had found what turned out to be the, quote, missing blowpoke in the basement boiler room, taken it outside and photographed it, then put it back, not where they had found it, but rather in the garage where the Petersons later found it more than a year later. Dew and Deaver were both there and witnessed this. At the time, the police did not consider the blowpoke significant. It clearly had nothing to do with Kathleen's death. There was no blood, no dents, so there was no evidentiary value. That, of course, all changed in May 2003, when the prosecution decided the blowpoke was missing and that it was definitely the murder weapon. The fact that it had been found and photographed by the police in June 2002 became extremely exculpatory evidence. It blew up the prosecution's theory, but the defense had never been told about this discovery or given the photo or any report documenting the discovery, even though Campen and George had both testified at the trial. 
this was yet another clear violation of Michael's constitutional rights and might well have changed the outcome of the first trial. But ultimately, Michael decided he did not want to once again subject himself or his family to what he had come to believe was a justice system that was rigged against him from the start. So he entered his Alford plea. And after 16 years, the case was over for Michael, for his family, and for David Rudolph. Since earning his freedom and finally being able to put the now 16-year trial behind him, Michael wrote two novels based on the events that occurred in December 2001. The first of these was entitled Behind the Staircase and was followed by Beyond the Staircase. Both novels serve as personal memoirs in which Peterson still asserts his innocence. Today, Peterson lives in Durham, North Carolina, in a ground-floor apartment. He still maintains a relationship with his children, who stuck by him through the entire trial, and is a grandfather to their children. Clayton Peterson lives in Maryland with his wife, Becky, and their sons, Dorian and Lucian Peterson. He shuns the spotlight but remains close to his dad and chooses to believe that he is still innocent. In a shocking turn of events, after standing by his dad's side the whole time, Todd Peterson posted a video in 2021, just months after his mom died, stating that he now believes Michael Peterson is guilty of killing Kathleen Peterson, Elizabeth Ratliff, and his mom. And to be specific, that his biological mom is patty peterson right michael's first wife in germany quote i'm about to call the cops for the murder of my mother patricia peterson todd explained who i now realize today that the motivation was money just like i now believe with kathleen so the reason why i put this quote in here from todd is because the video is very much worth watching if you go to YouTube and type it. You can find it very easily. And I am not a mental health professional, but it is very evident that from watching the video, Todd Peterson is struggling mm-hmm. with something, whether it be grief, anger, substance use disorder, an undiagnosed serious mental health condition or a combination of all of those. Mm -hmm. There's something that is going on outside of his control. Yes. And to me, that's apparent from the way that he is ranting and rambling and things don't quite, they make sense, but they don't at the same time. And Caitlin, you know, kind of what I'm talking about because it's, it's just very, very sad. And yeah. it shows you, like we've talked about before, how horrible this ordeal was for the children of Michael and Kathleen and Patricia and the ripple effect that, I mean, 2021. So this was no time ago. And it is. Hell, it was during COVID. Yeah. Where. A lot of people were struggling just from COVID itself, not the ordeal that he went through. Yeah. So So I'm not saying that he is 
oh, well, because he might not be well, he's wrong. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that regardless of what is going on, he clearly was very damaged by the events of this. And it's quite a juxtaposition how things ended up with him versus how his brother Clayton is doing. And if you want to get some tea on that, also do a Google on Clayton Peterson. (laughs) Yeah, we could do a fourth episode just on the kids. Yeah. Yeah, we really could. Then we'd be here for 10 episodes. You know, let us know. (laughs) Madison already says hell no. (laughs) (laughs) We'll spare you. It's just a Google away. Yes. Margaret Peterson also maintained that her dad didn't kill Kathleen Peterson or her birth mom, Elizabeth Ratliff. Margaret now lives in Los Angeles. She has undergone extensive therapy since the staircase was released and continues to have a close relationship with Michael Peterson. She also co-produced Subject, a deep dive doc that explores what happens to people like herself after documentaries featuring their stories are released. Martha Peterson, like her sister, was profoundly affected by Kathleen's death in the following trial and has been open about suffering tremendous anxiety in the years since. While she avoids the spotlight and social media, her Lincoln says she lives in Loveland, Colorado, and is a licensed clinical social worker who runs a private counseling practice. Caitlin Atwater, Kathleen's biological daughter, filed a wrongful death civil suit against Michael in 2002, and the case was finally settled six years later for $25 million. Still, Caitlin's not likely to ever see a penny of it as the bankrupt author continues to plead poverty. She'd agreed to hold payment until all of Michael's criminal appeals were spent. In 2017, Caitlin demanded the settlement be reinstated after Michael entered an Alford plea. With added interest, he now owes $30 million. Don't think she will be seeing any of that money. <laughs> oh. Sorry, Caitlin. I wish she could have $30 million of Michael Peterson's money if he did, in fact, kill her mom, but... I mean, I get it, like... But then it's just like, there's no amount the of he- money. Yeah, it's not but... going to bring your mom back. And it's just like, I I don't know. Just like, I don't know. Money does weird things to people. I mean, it does. I mean, anybody, anybody want to give me $30 million? Just let me know. Mm, same. So with all of that, that concludes our coverage of all three parts we decided to do of the michael peterson case highly recommend doing your own deep dive because there are so many different little branching relationships and details that we couldn't even get into or else we would be here forever but it's uh yeah it's a mess so there you have it i hope you guys enjoyed it and if you guys would like to give us a follow on Instagram. We're there at Camping is Cancelled, and we'd love to hear what y'all think about this case. So please oh, yes. feel free to share that. And if you have any other case suggestions, feel free to send them to campingiscanceled at gmail.com. And you know, if you want to hear us talk forever, you can also follow us on Patreon at Camping is Cancelled. 
And I think it's safe to say barred owls is the reason camping is canceled this week. <laughs> yes, for sure. Bye. Bye. Bye.